the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and this is episode 21, Battle of Vasquez, part 2. So, last week we discussed the race to Vicentio. And Caesar, having to virtually kick his army in the rear to get it to march against Ariovistus and his Swabian army. Then we discussed another set of meetings that completely fell. Um, And it actually came down to a dissing contest that I think we can all agree Ariovistus won. Finally, we discussed how Ariovistus had moved his army around behind Caesar's troops and was threatening to cut off Caesar's supply line. Today, we're going to discuss what Caesar's response is, the actual battle, and a little bit of the aftermath. Not too much, but just a little. So, what was Caesar's response? What did he try to do? Well, Caesar actually attempted to fight. Defensively. Caesar states that for five days, he tried to goad Ariovistus out into a fight. He would draw his men out into battle lines and have them stand there, probably taunting at the Swabians to come at him to attack. But Ariovistus declined. The Swabians and their allies never crossed the field and attacked Caesar's troops. And so for five days, the Romans would wake up in the morning, get in line, throw a couple of taunts, and stand there. Wondering, okay boss, what now? He tries again and again and again to get Ariovistus to attack, but every time Ariovistus refuses to comply. Now you, just like Caesar, are probably wondering why Ariovistus is refusing to enter battle. Why isn't he attacking? I mean, it's quite clear that Ariovistus was not going to make a deal with Caesar, so why just sit here and waste everyone's time? I mean, think about it from Ariovistus' point of view. He's leading this tribe, or much more likely a collection of tribes, through his ability to control the men. But he's not attacking. He's not allowing the men to fight. This is what they're supposed to be doing, but they're just sitting here. Why? Why is he doing this? This can't look good. Well, Caesar tells us that eventually he finds out that Ariovistus has been informed by the matrons of the camp not to attack. That if they attacked before the new moon, their gods would be displeased and would not give the battle to the Germans. Now, this offers some possible insight into the Swaby life. Not even Ariovistus would go against the ladies of the camp if they said the gods were against them. But there's something else that could be at play here. Something a little bit more strategical. Remember, more allies of the Swaby have been on their way. They're trying to cross the Rhine right now. I mean, this is the whole reason why we came to this point in history. 
This is why Caesar and Ariovistus are going at it. Because more of Ariovistus' allies are crossing the Rhine. If they did arrive in time, then the edge would definitely be given to Ariovistus and his men. They could outflank Caesar and either force him to retreat or overwhelm his troops. But he has to wait for these reinforcements to arrive. He has to wait for them. How do you get your men, who are all spoiled for a fight, to wait? You could rely a little bit on your own leadership, but eventually, I'm sure they're wanting to fight, and they're going to find someone who's going to lead them into that fight. And so saying, the matrons, the gods, have told us, do not go in. Do not fight. For if we do now, we will lose. Well, that might be enough to convince the men that, hey, we can wait. We'll follow Aerovistus' lead. The gods have told us to wait, so we will. And that's another possibility. Maybe Aerovistus believed that by the new moon, he would have received reinforcements that could turn the tide completely in his favor. Or it could be that the matrons had talked to the gods and found out that, no, we can't fight. If we do, we lose. And Ariovistus's hands were tied. Unfortunately, we'll never know because we, we don't have any records of their camps. We don't know what they were thinking or what they were doing. So unfortunately, all of this is just speculation. What Caesar tells us is that the matrons told Ariovistus that the gods had said no. So we have to leave it at that. But while Caesar is setting up his battle lines and he's goading Ariovistus to attack him, the Suebi aren't just standing there taking the insults. Taking in the fact that they look like cowards because they're not attacking their enemies like they're supposed to. Instead, they're using their superior cavalry and light infantry to skirmish with the Romans. What it turns into is that while the Roman line is the solid, untouched, bristling weapon, the Germans are nitpicking at the sides. They're hitting at the skirmishers in the front. They're going around behind the Roman line. No Swaby warriors are attacking the defending Roman lines. That would be suicide. They never attack the main body, but they make sure that the Romans know that they're there and that they know that the Germans aren't afraid to fight. They'll fight. Caesar claims that, in total, 12,000 German warriors were raiding and picking at his line over these five days. Now, half of these were on the small German ponies, which we've talked about from the early episodes. These small horses that dominated Germany. The other half were on their feet, with no armor, but simply prepared for speed. They'll have their weapons with them. They're mobile, they're fast, they're light. You see, the Germans on the ponies and the Germans on foot work together. They work hand in hand. So, if a horseman was unseated, then the footman would rush up and protect the horseman and either follow him out on foot or wait until another horse could be brought forward and pick him up and take him out. If a footman was wounded, then the horse partner would rush to his aid and pick him up. 
And Caesar claims that the footmen were just as fast as the ponies, allowing the two to keep pace with one another. And any time the Romans would try to bring their numbers against the raiding Suebi, the Suebi would just melt away thanks to their superior horsemanship and their lack of heavy armor allowing them to maintain a good speed. These guys must have been fast. But for five days, no major engagements happen. It's just this nitpicking raiding that's going on. And a frustrated Caesar wondering, what is Ariovistus doing? Why is he not attacking? Now, another thing to keep in mind is that Ariovistus may have realized the advantage the Romans have when they're on the defense. The Romans have heavy armor. They have solid formations. And that heavy armor and those solid formations are at their best when they're not having to move. If you have to charge at the enemy, you're going to tire with that heavy armor. It's going to be harder to maintain your formation if you're sprinting towards your enemies. But if you're standing still, well, you're not going to wear out as fast. You're not going to break your formation because you're not moving. And so if the Romans can maintain a defensive position, then Ariovistus would be playing right into their hand. He couldn't attack. And so maybe Ariovistus realized that he couldn't afford to go on the offensive. He had to force Caesar to attack him. And so by cutting off his supply line, it would force Caesar to eventually react. Again, no way of knowing, but this is another possibility for Ariovistus. Maybe he's nitpicking at the Romans, trying to dwindle their supplies and force Caesar to launch the assault or abandon the area completely. So, for five days, Caesar is stuck in this stalemate. He's unable to get the Germans to attack him, and he's unwilling to lose control of his own army in a direct assault on Ariovistus' camp. And so Caesar, day after day, is just forced to sit and brood while his supplies lay on the far side of Ariovistus. He finally accepts that a battle was not going to happen, there was no way that Caesar could get Ariovistus to attack in their current position. So he decided that first he needed to restore his supply line, secure it, and that he's going to make a huge gamble and split his forces. Now, if you don't know anything about strategy or tactics, you're, you might be wondering, what's the big risk? Well, if part of your force gets isolated, then the enemy can use their superior numbers to wipe it out. And if you have one-to-one numbers like Caesar and Ariovistus have right now, then losing that section of your troops to that superior number gives your enemy a huge advantage because you've lost all those men and Ariovistus still has all of his. So by cutting his force in half, or uh, one-third leaving, or two-thirds leaving, what have you, by cutting your force in pieces like this, you risk the enemy taking advantage of your weakness and eliminating a portion of your army. But it also comes with an opportunity for Caesar. First, by moving a portion of his army out of the camp, he can convince the Germans to attack him. He can get Ariovistus to launch an assault on a prepared force. 
This is what he's been trying to do for five days. So maybe by giving an opportunity to Ariovistus to take the advantage, then maybe Caesar can finally get the assault he's been looking for. Now his biggest risk, first, when he's moving those troops, and second, before they can build any fortifications. While his men are on the march, Ariovistus can send his troops to attack them while they're not in battle formation. While his troops are there at their new camp, he can launch assault and force them to fight without prepared fortification. So these are the two big risks that Caesar's taking right now. And it depends on how he does this march, if it's going to be successful. So to eliminate Ariovistus' best chance, Caesar doesn't just send a portion of his army away. He's not going to do that until he can have the secondary camp built up and prepared. So instead, he sends his entire army to this new camp. This allows him to maintain control of his army and to make sure that Ariovistus would have to attack his entire army before the camp is prepared. Now, in order to give time for the new camp to be prepared, he needed to provide as many workers as possible. However, the more workers he has working on this camp, the less men he has to hold off any Germans. It's a catch-22 scenario. So, in order to combat this, Caesar gives one-third of his troops to building the camp. So, one of every three soldiers is working to build the camp. The other two-thirds are standing in formation, prepared to repel any Germans. This is Caesar's plan, but it's not the complete plan. There's one more aspect I haven't told you about that really explains why Caesar is building the second camp. And it's where he decides to build this camp. You see, these camps that we've been talking about they have enough distance in between the two enemies to allow them to realize if the enemy is going to launch a surprise attack. Gives their men enough time to quickly don their armor, get in formation, and prepare for a fight before the enemy can rush across the field. But this new camp, it's only about 600 paces from Ariovistus. It's almost right across the street from them. So, Ariovistus would have to see this camp every morning and know that it's just right there. He could literally launch an assault on that camp and take it. He could attack before the rest of Caesar's men could arrive and protect the camp. And his men, well, they're not going to like it that the Romans feel comfortable enough to build a camp right at their doorstep. That's insulting. They don't like that. And so Ariovistus is going to have a bunch of disgruntled tribesmen saying, why in the world are we sitting here? Why aren't we attacking? Let's go in. Let's finish this. They're right there. And so Caesar's taunting Ariovistus. He's trying to get this fight. He's saying, look, look, I've left myself open. Hit me, hit me. And it seems... To work at first. Now, Caesar claims that Ariovistus sent out some troops to harass the Roman lines, 
to try to stop them from building the camp, to delay them. And this could be the truth. It could also be that Ariovistus sort of lost control. Some of the Germanic tribesmen said enough was enough, and they launched their own assaults. This is another possibility, because remember, we don't know exactly how Ariovistus' army was set up. We know that it wasn't just one tribe. But we don't know if he had complete control, like Caesar had of his own army. But Caesar tells us that 16,000 Swabians and other Germanic tribesmen attacked his defensive line, harassed it, poked at it, would launch occasional assaults into the lines. And while the fighting was ferocious in some areas, it was tentative, and they never broke through. And if this was mainly the cavalry and the light men, well, that would make sense, because they're not equipped to do a frontal assault on a Roman line. They're equipped to pick at. They're equipped to damage, but not kill. And so Caesar's men are able to repel this feint, and the camp is built. And so he leaves two legions in this new camp. He leaves one-third of his men in this new camp, and he marches the rest back to the larger camp, further away. I mean, come on. Ariovistus has to attack, right? He could literally wipe out two legions. Caesar had dangled this prize in front of him. And I bet he went to bed that night planning for a fight in the morning, thinking, yes, Ariovistus is going to attack. Finally, we're going to get the fight I've been looking for. And so the next morning, Caesar wakes up, he puts on his armor, he marches his four legions out of the larger camp, rushing towards the smaller camp, expecting to hear a fight breaking out, and nothing. Ariovistus and his troops don't even leave their entrenchments. They're just sitting there, staring at the Romans, who are waiting for them to attack. At this point, Caesar's probably going... What do you want? Come here. Hit me. Do something. God, you're boring. Probably kicking a couple of things around. Extremely grumpy man. Nothing is going the way it's supposed to. And so he doesn't even wait the full day. Caesar says, screw it. We're going back to camp. I need to nurse this headache. We got to come up with another way of getting Ariovistus to attack us. And so he turns around and he marches his legions back to their camp and leaving the two legions in their new camp. And it's at this point that Ariovistus finally launches an assault. And it makes sense. Caesar had expected a fight and Ariovistus knew that Caesar had to be expecting a fight. And so instead of doing what Caesar wanted, he waited. He waited until Caesar gave up, believed that there wasn't going to be a fight. And then he struck. Unfortunately for Ariovistus, they're not able to destroy the smaller camp. The smaller camp is able to hold out until probably Caesar arrives with reinforcements. And so Ariovistus retreats back to his camp. And we consider it a draw at this point. 
Caesar finally had his fight, but he admits that the casualties were extremely uh, heavy on both sides, probably about even. But Ariovistus still is on the field with his army. And so Caesar can't claim a victory. And from Ariovistus' point of view, he finally gave the battle that his men were probably clamoring for. They finally were able to draw blood on the Romans. Maybe they'll be willing to wait. Willing to wait for these reinforcements that might be coming. Or wait until the matrons say that they can fight. But for Caesar, he's finally understanding that Ariovistus is not going to attack him when he wants. Ariovistus is not going to play Caesar's game. And so Caesar, well, he's going to have to bring the fight to Ariovistus. Now, this is risky for Caesar. His men have to launch the assault. But Caesar can't keep waiting around here. He's got to do something. And so, the next day, he draws up his army, prepared to fight, but he's not going to stand there. Instead, he's going to go at Ariovistus. He's going to bring the fight to him. There would be no waiting now. Blood would be spilt. And this day was going to decide who would control Alsace in eastern Gaul. So while Caesar drew up his own lines, Ariovistus decided that he should draw up his too when he realized that Caesar wasn't just standing there. He was actually coming at him. Caesar claims that the Germans put their wagons in their camp behind their army, with their women and the children watching from above to remind the men the price of defeat. That these women and children would be Roman slaves at best if the German tribesmen lose. From what we can tell, Caesar and Ariovistus had the same plan. Caesar's plan was a full assault with a focus on the right. Ariovistus' plan was a full assault, but with focus on the Romans' left, which would have been his right. If either side could crush that flank before their own flank fell, then they could sweep up the rest of the enemy's army and rout them from the field. Now Caesar takes command of the right flank. He wants to make sure that flank punches through. We don't know where Ariovistus was. Might have been in center. He could have been on one of the flanks. We don't know. If he's like Caesar, he was probably on the Romans' left flank, the Germans' right flank, trying to break through there. Now, as the Romans are marching forward, the Germans are standing in their defensive positions waiting. They're prepared to fight. And so the Romans, they charge. Now, when the Romans charge... They have a tactic that they use every single time. And that's when they get within range, they'll stop for a second, take out their javelins, and launch them at the enemy before finishing the charge in a full sprint. Now this launching of the javelins serves a couple of things. First, it's going to thin the enemy ranks a bit because you're just launching a bunch of pointed sticks at the enemy. Surely some of them are going to go down. Second, it weakens the enemy's shields. So if there's this giant stick sticking into your shield, well, first, your shield is weakened because it's been penetrated. And second, 
it's got all this extra weight that you're unused to and it's going to make it harder for you to use that shield properly. And third, it causes momentary confusion in the enemy that could turn the tide in any battle. You launch those spears, the enemy's reacting, they're raising their shields, they weren't prepared for it, and then all of a sudden there's a Roman soldier right in front of them with his sword pulled out. But the Romans' plan is they launch their javelins and then they get in close for hand-to-hand. However, somehow Ariovistus had planned for this. He knew what the Romans were going to do because Caesar claims that before the Romans could throw their javelins, the Germans launched themselves, sprinted towards the Romans and got into contact. And so the Romans who are quickly trying to pull out their javelins to throw, it's too late. They have to drop their javelins and immediately pull their swords. And this very important advantage that the Romans have is gone. The fighting is even. It's going to be hand-to-hand. It could go any way. And so if you think about the map, you have these two huge lines. Both of them are larger on their right sides. And they just slam into each other. And the question is, who's going to break first? Is it going to be the Romans, or is it going to be the Germans? Caesar says the fighting was desperate. That Roman soldiers were literally grabbing German shields and ripping them off so that their allies could get a free stab in. This, of course, puts them at risk because they're not busy defending themselves. Both of their hands are being used to pull off the shield. The fighting is desperate. It's rough. But eventually, the Germans' right starts to break through. It seems as though the Suebi are going to win this battle. However, Publius Crassus, seeing what's happened, pulls himself out of the battle and organizes a counterattack that sweeps into the Germans who are just about to break through the Romans' left. And the line holds. Meanwhile, Caesar's own assault on the Germans' left breaks through. There is no reinforcements being brought in to stop Caesar from breaking through. And the Germans are shattered. They see their their flank has been taken. They know what this means. And the line just starts to disintegrate. Now, it's going to take a while for this to happen, but eventually word spreads among the Swabi and their allies, and they all start fleeing towards the Rhine, which is about 50 miles from the battle. See, to the Germans, they saw the Rhine as the border, as their protection. If they could get across that, then the Romans couldn't touch them, but they had to get there. And so Caesar and his cavalry are pursuing the Germans. They're cutting down those they can catch, putting others into slavery. But for Caesar, he's looking for one man, one man in particular, because Ariovistus was not found on the battlefield. He had somehow escaped, and Caesar wanted him. And so the chase was on. But for Caesar, there was just too many fleeing Germans. Not enough space. And so his men were being overwhelmed 
with the fighting because they would catch a group of Germans and they would have to stop and fight and kill or capture those Germans before moving on. Meanwhile, the rest were constantly sprinting away from the Romans, getting closer and closer to that river. And Ariovistus escapes. He makes it to the far side of the river just as some of the Gallic cavalry serving the Romans arrive. But for Caesar, there is a secondary prize. Both of Ariovistus' wives and one of his daughters is killed in the fighting. But the other is captured, and Caesar will be holding on to her for safekeeping, making sure that Ariovistus is not going to be an issue. And thus ended the Battle of Vasquez, and it answers our question of who was going to control Eastern Gaul, Rome or the Germanic tribes. Those Germanic tribes that had lined the Rhine, preparing to join the Ariovistus, well, they turn around and they melt into the woods. They disappear. Others will actually ally with Caesar, and they'll turn on the Suebi and try to eliminate them before they can reestablish themselves on this side of the Rhine. Now, for Caesar, this is a massive victory, no doubt about it. He has secured allies loyal to him in eastern Gaul. The Gauls are singing his praise nonstop. They are super happy with him, and they have good reason to be. First of all, he eliminated the Helvetii, which had said that they were going to just rampage through Gaul while they are trying to find their new home. And then he dealt with Ariovistus, who betrayed his own allies, set up a new base, and was planning to expand into Gaul. Caesar is great. He just eliminated these two. Now, they're going to stop thinking that real fast when they realize that Caesar's not going away. In fact, the Romans are kind of expanding into their territory. But for now, they're really happy with him. They see him as an ally. He's also gained a bunch of prisoners, gained a bunch of treasure that he can turn around and sell to make his army loyal to him and for his own pocket. He's proven that he's a general too. Not only did he defeat the rampaging tribe of the Helveti, but he defeated Ariovistus and a Germanic tribe, a tribe that has the same background as the Cimbri something that the Romans have feared would come again. Well, he just turned them away. What about the Suebi? What happens for them after this? Well, they don't disappear. In fact, they will recover. And they will reestablish themselves as one of the most powerful tribes on the far side of the Rhine. And they will remain a thorn in Caesar's side for the rest of his life. And we'll talk about that later on. But for the Swaby, this isn't the end of the story. They will be back. For Ariovistus, well, yeah, this is the end of the story. He just sort of disappears. We don't know what really happens to him. Caesar mentions that he dies later on and that his death caused some agitation among the Germans, but we don't know why that caused issues for the Germans. We don't know how he died. We don't know anything. We do know that he probably never really held any sort of power after this. I mean, who wants a tribal leader who lost this bad? 
but who knows? What we do know is that Caesar has kicked out these Germanic tribes from Gaul, and he's quote-unquote secured Gaul for Gaul. When in reality, he's eliminated his biggest threat at this point for control of Eastern Gaul and Central Gaul, and eventually all of Gaul. will do it for today. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. We will be back again next week to continue our discussion of Caesar and the Germans. I hope you guys have a great week and I will see you next Tuesday.